Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. Our gospel text this morning is from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Listen once again to the word of the Lord. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight And say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, do not bother me. The door has already been locked. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence. He will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do you pray? I don't know about you, but I agonize over this. Do I pray enough? Am I asking God for the right things? Am I giving God enough of my love, my time, my thanksgiving? Why do I forget to say thank you after my prayers are answered? Why do my most persistent prayers seem to go unanswered? Why are some of them answered explosively overnight? Does it matter that I pray for my friends, my congregation, my family, my cat? I pray for my cat a fair bit. 
Does it matter more if I do it more? Or does God just take the one entry into consideration? Some of us approach prayer as to-do list people. We check off the items and we try to hit a certain number of the world's problems each day. These are the people who put devotions or quiet time in their Google calendars. Personally, I have tried every method of accountability or lack thereof, praying the Book of Common Worship, praying with an app, praying with a weekly list, praying with other people, praying with no agenda at all. Every single one of them ends up feeling like a to-do list. In every other area of life, a good to-do list fills me with peace and joy. But somehow, it absolutely kills prayer. What is the problem? If you suffer from anxiety, maybe you worry over the exhaustiveness of your prayer. If I don't remember this person, will God remember them? If I skip prayers this morning, will God have less regard for my child? If I skip prayers for three months, will God let something bad happen that I could have prevented? If this is your view of the world and your view of prayer, you may be so wounded and tired out that you just stop praying. But the guilt doesn't go away. Others of us are in a completely different boat. Maybe you think that God will be bothered by your constant pestering. Many think their little problems are not important to God, and many more think even their big problems are below his notice. Maybe you think it's arrogant to believe that God cares. Maybe you reason that there's no evidence to support the idea that prayer works. So it's not an effective use of time that could be spent tackling problems. Maybe you worry that if you pray something to death and hear nothing, you will lose something fundamental about your relationship with God and your hope for the world. And so you just don't. I don't know if this disciple who asked Jesus wrestled with any of these particular issues. Their world was different. But they were a person. And because people live after the fall, enslaved to the decay in the world, there is always a barrier to communion with God. It's not theoretical. For every one of us, there is an existential understanding that here and now, in this life where we long for something that we can't quite name, we're not in direct communion with God. At least not yet. In our text today, one person who feels that need too is asking a question that we ask, Lord, teach us to pray. 
This version of the Lord's Prayer here in Luke is a little shorter than the one we typically pray and will pray later in the service. That one's in Matthew. But the bones are the same. There's more here than we could ever unpack today. We learn that we should pray for forgiveness, for God's reign, for our daily needs, for protection. But I want to focus on the first little phrase, Father, hallowed be your name. In Sprout, we are learning the Lord's Prayer. In fact, I don't see any of our Sprout kids today, but they know it backwards and forwards. This week, we learned about the word hallowed. And I want to note, it's not hollowed. We don't want God's name to be empty, but rather we want people everywhere to know and to tell other people that God's name is holy and great. Joel Green, he's a scholar on Luke, says that he thinks there's a connection between this first phrase, hallowed be thy name, and the story that Jesus tells right after the prayer. Take a look back in your Bible, if you have a pew Bible, Luke 11. Jesus puts us in this weird and uncomfortable situation. Someone shows up at midnight and you have nothing in your fridge. So instead of setting them up on your couch to sleep and saying, we'll find breakfast in the morning, You get in the car, and you drive to another friend's house, which is dark. But you get out of the car, and you knock on the door, and a light goes on upstairs. Your friend looks out the window and sees you and says, are you okay? And you say, do you have some ice cream or like a six pack of beer? My other friend showed up, and I don't have anything. And they say, go away, my kids are asleep. Stop yelling and banging on the door. A couple of months ago, I drove to Massachusetts with some friends, and both of them live in Queens, and I live in Manhattan, so I took the train back from Queens. I asked if they would drop me off in Manhattan, but they said, very reasonably, heck no. It'll take an extra hour to get in and out, We've been in the car all day. In Jesus' story here, I refuse to get out of the car until they drive me into Manhattan. I am so irritating and stubborn and unreasonable that it's just not worth it to have the fight. And so I get my way. It's a weird story for Jesus to tell. Is this really how prayer works? Green says, the scholar from before, says that our relationship with God, this relationship that we claim when we call him Father, is such that this kind of audacity is not out of place. It's not just any friend that you would ask after four hours in the car to take another hour to drive you into Manhattan. It's not just any friend that you would bother in the middle of the night. I remember the night my brother was born, my parents dropped off my younger siblings with friends for the night at the last minute. It's that kind of friend. The scene being set here is a relationship where there's really significant trust and a sense that you are allowed to bother. You know the relationship will withstand it, whatever the answer. And the other person will not be embarrassed into saying yes, just because you asked. 
on the other hand, we have this undeniable rudeness that is clearly meant to poke at our sense of propriety. We would never do this. Families and friendships and society itself would collapse if we went around behaving like this. But that's not really the point. The point is that there's another motivating factor in this interaction besides the closeness and trust in the friendship. This guy is going to be so embarrassed in front of his neighbors that he'll come down and give you what you want if you're persistent enough. He doesn't want to be seen as selfish or have a commotion at his house. That's not exactly how God is, of course. Parables are never exhaustive metaphors. They're just illustrations. But God's hallowed name, meaning the honor and glory of his being and his presence, are at stake in his dealings with us. Because God has chosen to covenant with human beings and in Jesus Christ to be a human being. The honor of his name is connected with the fulfillment of the promise to be our God. A fellow pastor in the city says that if you carefully read the Old Testament, you will come away wondering if God is or is not going to keep his side of the covenant. Because humans have broken ours. The prophets seem to say both at different times. You will be my people, and I will be your God. But will he continue to be our God after we have rebelled against our identity as his people? That's the question at the end of the Old Testament. And the Gospels pick up there. The God side of this covenant and the human side of this covenant are filled in one person, Jesus Christ, who is both. And so as we are made members of Jesus Christ, we receive two things that are true of him. First, that God is his father. And second, that God has chosen to be bound by this covenant with humanity. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to be bound by the covenant. And so God's name, the honor and meaning of that name have been attached to this promise. And so when we pray, we have confidence both in God's love for us in Jesus Christ and in God's choice to be a promised, covenanted God. In a thriving Christian marriage, you have confidence both in your spouse's love for you and in their choice to be known to the world as a husband or a wife. We have confidence both in the relationship of trust that allows for audacious requests and in the relationship of promise in which God's name is committed on the line for our good and for his glory. So what does this mean for your prayer life? 
I think that every problem with prayer that we talked about at the beginning comes down to this. Believing that by fulfilling some requirement of holiness or love or effort, we will make God fulfill our requests. By adoring enough, we will get God's love. By confessing enough, we will get God's forgiveness. By thanking and asking enough, we will guilt God into answering. None of us would say this. But it worms its way into our practice via these different problems in our prayer lives. The solution is this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Easier said than believed. Easier believed than lived by. It is really hard for us to let go of our need to be deserving. Whether we are cover our holiness bases people, or I'm not important enough people, whether we are God can do anything people, or prayer doesn't work people, our problem is the same. We believe that our relationship with God is dependent on us, but it's not. Your most intimate and honest prayers probably come out of your love for God, or for someone else, or out of hope for your life. They don't come out of obligation. They come out of audacity and confidence. They come out of desperation. They come out of some sort of surrender. That communion with God that we crave is what Jesus offers to us. We know that it is real, but still in this world we see through a glass darkly. Now we know in part, but one day we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Brothers and sisters, our congregation is at a crossroads. We are deciding who we are. We are deciding what kind of people we are going to embrace. We are deciding what kind of discipleship we want to pursue. We are deciding what kind of neighborhood church we want to be. We are deciding who we want to lead us. Let us also decide to be praying people. Let us choose together to be people who come to our God with humble audacity and stubborn hope. Let us be people who pray first. People who pray persistently people who know what it is like to be told no and to be told yes. Let us be people who pester God and at the same time believe that the answer that comes is the right one. But let us be people who ask. Amen.